You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Let me ask this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, some people, they think he was a political revolutionary. That that he came not to save individual souls, but to reform society structures. To other people, Jesus was just a moral teacher. He, He didn't come with a religious or even a spiritual agenda. No, he came with an ethical agenda to teach us a way of life, the good life, how to be good people in this world. Some people even think that Jesus is a fictional legend, uh, the fanciful invention of first century Christians. Now, whoever you think Jesus is, let's pause for a moment. I want to suggest that that final claim, that he is nothing more than a fictional legend, is one that's pretty difficult to sustain. Let let me give you a few examples. Uh, In the first century, uh, there was a Jewish commander called Josephus and a Syrian philosopher called Mara Basarapion, and both of them write about a Jewish king who birthed the Christian movement. And not long later, the Roman intellectual Tacitus, this is what he writes about someone called Christus. Christus had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. You see, the historical evidence for Jesus' existence, can I suggest, is pretty much beyond dispute. The question for us today is not, did Jesus exist? No, we know that he did. The question is, who is Jesus? And according to Mark's biography, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, well, guess what? Even his family and friends didn't quite get him. But but after eight chapters of watching him perform miracles and preach the message of the kingdom of God, his disciple Peter, well, he finally gets it. In Mark 8.29, the penny drops and Peter declares, you are the Messiah. Jesus is God's saviour king. That's what we saw back in 2019, all those months ago, when we preached the first half of Mark's gospel. And now, we return to this gospel to ask a slightly different question. We're not asking, who is this king? We're asking, what king is this? What king is this? If Jesus is God's saviour king, what kind of king is he? Maybe he's a noble king like Aragon of Gondor, or a violent king like Odin, the Viking god of war, or a wicked king like Commodus, that tyrannical emperor that you may have seen in Gladiator, who slaughtered the disabled in the Colosseums of Rome. No, no, it matters not only that Jesus is king, It matters what kind of king he is. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to journey through Mark 9 to 11. And in these chapters, we're going to see that Jesus, he's not just God's saviour king. No, he's much more than that. Jesus is God's suffering king. Jesus is a king who suffers to save his people. You know, it's been said that people are like ogres and ogres are like onions. Onions have layers 
And if, and if you want to know someone for who they really are, what do you got to do? You need to peel back all the layers, don't you? We need to pull back the veil to see who someone really is at the core of their being. And today, God is going to peel back the layers. He's going to pull back the veil, as it were, to reveal the very core of who Jesus is. We're going to see Jesus at the core of his very being. And let me give you the spoiler alert right up front in verses 2 to 8. We're going to see that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And in verses 9 to 13, we're going to see that He is the suffering Son of Man. The beloved Son of God and the suffering Son of Man. So often, we climb mountains to see something glorious, don't we? In fact, uh, my BLT was thinking about going on a hike. I know some people, that really excites them. They want to go on a hike and see something glorious and have that mountaintop experience. Other people would much rather have that mountaintop experience from the comfort of their own home online. But can I tell you, it's amazing when you hike a mountain. I mean, we, we hike up the Razorback, up Mount Feathertop, to look out over the Victorian high country. We, we scramble up Mount Kilimanjaro to see the sun rise over the endless plains of Tanzania. We climb Mount Kinabalu to marvel at the deep jungles of East Malaysia. There's something about standing at the top of a mountain that just, I don't know, it just takes our breath away, doesn't it? It's like we're coming face to face with something truly glorious. You know, throughout the Old Testament, people would often climb a mountain as well. And they would climb a mountain not just to see something glorious. No, they would climb a mountain to meet glory itself. It was at the top of a mountain that God would so often meet His people and reveal His glory. Do you remember in our last series in Genesis? Genesis 22. Where is it that Abraham and Isaac hike to then receive the ram as a sacrifice and substitute? They, they hike a mountain, don't they? Mount Moriah. Then fast forward, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, they don't get to this point. Uh, Exodus 24 to 34, Moses climbs Mount Sinai, where God gives his law, seals his covenant, and reveals his glory. In fact, it's that encounter at the top of Mount Sinai, which is in the Old Testament, the one place where God most clearly reveals his glory. It's there at the top of Mount Sinai that he peels back the layers, that he pulls back the veil to reveal the very core of his being. Go hiking. Mountains matter. Now look in Mark 9. Where does Jesus lead his three disciples? You see it right there? They go up a high mountain. Up a high mountain, what's probably Mount Hermon. And there, the disciples, can I tell you, it's like an action replay, but even better. That they don't just see something glorious. No, just like Moses, they meet glory itself. They come face to face with Jesus' glory at the top of Mount Hermon. In verses 2 to 3, Jesus was transfigured, or literally, he experienced a metamorphosis right before their eyes. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. That's pretty white. 
In Exodus 34, when Moses met the Lord, his own face shone with the reflection of God's glory. That's how glorious God was. Now in Mark 9, Jesus himself shines, not, not just as a reflection of God's glory, but as glory itself. He's whiter than white, purer than pure, holier than holy. He is more perfect than perfection itself. I mean, if we're honest with us, all of us have some stain, some blemish, some imperfection, don't we? If, if a clean white shirt represents the purity of our lives, then I probably suspect that all of us are wearing a shirt that is filthy and dirty. Clothes so deeply stained that nothing can ever wash them clean. But not so Jesus. No, He is pure without blemish, perfect without fault, and glory without shadow. If you want to see Jesus at the core of His very being, this is where you turn. This is Jesus with all the layers peeled away, all the veils pulled back. And when Peter, James and John, they, they see Jesus in His glory, how do they feel? How would you feel? They're terrified. See, we're supposed to see this image of Jesus in His purest, truest and realest self and say, wow. I don't hike a lot. Maybe you can tell. The Victorian high country, the endless plains of Tanzania, the deep jungles of East Malaysia where you'll get lost and probably die. Each of them have their own glory. None of them. None of them can compare with the purest, highest, and greatest glory that we see in Jesus. Gosh, all of them put together are but a faint reflection of the God who created them. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God, please, let me see your glory. And what did God do? He caused his goodness to pass in front of him. And now we see the greatest display of that glory, the, the goodness of God, all personified in one man. We see it all in Jesus. Friends, can you see what Mark is showing us? Jesus is the Lord who met Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God himself. That's why he's flanked by Elijah and Moses, the two great forerunners of the day of the Lord. That the Old Testament ends with this prophecy in Malachi 4. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statute and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In Malachi 4, Moses and Elijah, they both point forward to the day on which God will come to judge the wicked and save his people. And fast forward now, here in Mark 9, that day has come. Elijah and Moses, they're talking with Jesus, the one man whom they've been waiting for. All the Old Testament, all of Genesis, all of everything from Genesis to Malachi has been waiting for this one man Everything has been waiting for this one king. And now Jesus has come. 
And Jesus is that king. Peter, I love Peter. He responds just like we would expect. And in many ways, he actually responds just like any faithful Jew would. In verse 5, he offers to set up three shelters, three tabernacles, to, to capture God's presence on that mountain. But for all of his good intentions, though, he's making two fatal mistakes. Firstly, by setting up three tents, he's kind of putting Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. That's always a bad idea. Secondly, he cannot see that Jesus needs no tabernacle. He needs no tent. No, he himself is the presence of God. God himself has come in Jesus. It's as if Mark is putting up this big neon sign up in lights that all points at Jesus and says, this is God's saviour king. Some of us are a bit slower to understand. I'm one of those slow learners. You can tell me something three, four, five times and I still won't quite get it. But I feel too much shame, so I'll tell you I get it and then I'll pretend like I do where I really don't. Sometimes the disciples can be just a little bit like that here. And God makes it really easy. But if you had any doubt at all, God clears all the doubt away. You see, just like the Lord spoke out of a cloud in Exodus 24, He now speaks out of a cloud in verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You can't get clearer than that, right? And then suddenly, everyone's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And only Jesus is left standing. Only He is the beloved Son of God. Did you know that more than half of all Australians believe in a God? It might surprise you. So more than half of Australians believe in the existence of a God, but only one in six Australians attend church regularly. And by regularly, they mean once a month. That is not our standard of regular, by the way. That means that your average Australian is what you call spiritual, but not religious. They believe in a God, but they don't trust in Jesus. That might describe some of your friends. It might even describe some of you. So you might not be a Christian, but you might still believe in a God. You might not know what to think about Jesus or Christianity or the gospel, but you still believe that there is some supreme being who created this whole world. And if that's you, let me ask, how do you plan to find that God? Where do you plan to meet that God? If you believe in a God, but you don't know where to find Him, God is making it very easy. This Jesus is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. You see, you might read Mark 9 and think to yourself, wow, what an amazing picture of God. He's everything I imagined him to be. But can you see, God isn't just some impersonal glorious light that we can't approach. No, he's the perfect man who we can personally know. If you want to find God, if you want to see God face to face, then listen to Jesus. Jesus is God Himself. Jesus is God's glory embodied in one man. Jesus is the God you've always been looking for. 
Mark 9 shows us Jesus as he really is. He is the beloved Son of God. Fellow Christian, many of us, I suspect, think too lowly of Jesus. We rightly see him as a human. We read the Gospels, we see him walking around on streets that you could fly to in better circumstances, uh, and we think, well, he's just one of us. He's a human. He's a man. And in one sense, that's true. But I suspect too often we forget to see him as God. You see, if we see Jesus as just another man, it's so easy to dismiss him, isn't it? We treat him like we would treat, well, just anyone else. We don't take him seriously. We relate to him as just another guy, just one of the boys. So, so we treat his words as negotiable, don't we? We, we consider his commands are optional. We don't fall down before this God in fear and trembling. No, instead we disregard this God with casual indifference. The truth is many of us simply do not treat Jesus as God. We don't behold him in his glory and we don't listen to him as God's son. And here's the truth. If we do not see who Jesus is, we will not listen to what he says. If we do not see who Jesus is, we will not listen to what he says. But God tells us today, no, this is my beloved son. And for those of us who are slow of hearing, listen to him. Just imagine, right? If only, if only we saw Jesus in his glory. If we truly saw Jesus in his glory, wouldn't we want to listen to his words would we not listen to his words by reading the Bible for ourselves each and every day? If we, saw tr- if we truly saw Jesus in his glory, would we not listen to his words as we gather around the Bible one-to-one and in small groups? If we truly saw Jesus in his glory, would we not listen to his words by coming every Sunday to hear the Bible preached, expecting God to speak, not trading the glory of his word for the cheap pleasure of a warm bed, a road trip, or sheer laziness? If we do not see Jesus in his glory, we will not listen to his words. if we see him as nothing more than just a man, we'll ignore his words as boring, trivial, and irrelevant. But if we see him as he truly is, if we see him in the fullness of his glory, if we see him as the beloved Son of God, can I tell you, we will listen to his words as if our very lives depended on it. And they do. Let me ask, how actively do you listen to to Jesus' words in the Bible? How actively do you listen to Jesus' words in the Bible? And depending on that answer, what does that say about who you believe him to be? What does that say about who you believe him to be? Friends, we have come face to face with glory. We have seen Jesus in his purest, truest and realest. He is the beloved Son of God. And now, as we go down the mountain, we're going to see Jesus in a very different light. 
Not only are we going to see him as the beloved son of God, no, now we're going to see him as the suffering son of man. When I come down from a mountaintop experience, which happens most weeks, I want to tell everyone about absolutely everything that I've seen. Truth be told, I've hiked one mountain, real mountain in my life. It was Cradle Mountain. And when I came back, I kept telling my friends about it, that they refused to believe that I actually hiked the mountain. You see, when you come down, you want to share the glory with everyone, don't you? You want to tell them what you saw. Just imagine coming down from Everest Base Camp having seen the most amazing sights of the Himalayas, only to be told, you cannot tell a soul. No Instagram post, no Facebook post, if people still do that, you can't tell anyone. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? But, but that's exactly what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. Just think about it, right? Peter, James and John, they've just come face to face with the glory of God. And now Jesus is telling them, don't tell us all. Not until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, if you're one of his disciples, this is jarring on two levels, right? Firstly, how can you expect me to keep silent about the greatest revelation of God since Moses on Mount Sinai? This never happens. People often say to me, Adam, if only God would appear right before my eyes. Well, if I'm one of the disciples, he just did. And now you want me to not tell anyone? But secondly, Jesus, what do you mean by rising from the dead? Rising from the dead, doesn't that mean you're going to die? How in the world can that be possible? I just saw you in the fullness of your glory. I saw your purity, your power and your perfection. I saw your immortality as king of glory over absolutely everything. And now you're going to say you're going to die? And Jesus, you just call yourself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Any Jew knows that the Son of Man is that Saviour King who will establish God's eternal kingdom. I mean, the prophet Daniel wrote about you. If you're the Son of Man, Daniel said that your kingdom will be eternal and will never be destroyed. If you're the Son of Man, the Son of Man don't die. The Son of Man lives. The Son of Man isn't defeated. The Son of Man is supposed to be victorious. But now, you're going to die? That's not how the story goes. That's why in verse 11 they ask, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Do you remember back to Malachi 4? Before the day of the Lord, Elijah would come and restore all things. He would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So trace the logic, right? If you're the king, that means Elijah has already come. And if Elijah has already come, that means he's already restored all things. And if Elijah has already restored all things, then why you got to die? It just doesn't make sense. I want you to picture for a moment a basketball game. I struggle. It's the fourth quarter. We're in the final seconds of the game. Your team is just two points down and your coach decides to draw up a play for the final shot. So here's how it's going to go. Johnson, your star player, he'll create a diversion and draw out the other team's defense. And as he does that, he'll create an opening for our second star player, how soon to go in and take the winning shot. But your coach says, no, no, there is one catch though. 
Before Hal takes that shot, before he wins the game for your, se- for your team, before he wins the entire season, if indeed they are seasons, he's going to be unfairly ejected and then suspended for the rest of the season. Now I know, you basketballers on Saturday morning are sitting there thinking, going, oh, Adam, you poor, poor man. That is not how basketball works. That's not how it works. A player can't just be unfairly ejected, let alone suspended. And how in the world is how soon going to win the game if he's out of it? And yet, that's kind of exactly what the disciples are thinking, right? That's not how this works. That the Son of Man can't just unfairly suffer and then die. And how in the world would he save the world if he's stuck in the grave? It just don't make sense. But that's exactly what Jesus says must happen. Before people see him in his glory, they must see him in his suffering. In verse 12, Jesus, he does something quite ironic, right? He actually affirms what his disciples say. Elijah does come first and restores all things. But not in the way you expect. Because look at verse 13. They did whatever they pleased to him. They treated this Elijah with contempt. They even killed him. Can you tell who Jesus might be referring to? Who is Jesus talking about here? Well, that's right. Bible trivia, he's talking about John the Baptist. That that Elijah-like figure who prepared the way for Jesus all the way back in chapter 1. And then in chapter 6, King Herod, what does he do? He did whatever he pleased to him. He arrested him. He imprisoned him. And he killed him. Can you see what Jesus is saying If that's what they did to John, what do you think they're going to do to me? This is not a triumphant Elijah for a triumphant king. No, this is a suffering Elijah for a suffering king. Hence verse 12. Why why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Can you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I'm the Son of Man in Daniel, that, that star player who will save my people by defeating the enemy and establishing my kingdom. But I'm also the suffering servant of Isaiah, the sacrificial lamb who will save my people by suffering and dying for them. Or Jesus says to you this day, I will save you by suffering for you. I will redeem you by being rejected for you. I will care for you by being killed for you. I will deliver you by dying for you. Does that picture of Jesus surprise you? Does that picture of Jesus might even jar against you? You see, we live in a world where strength is success and where might is right. Most of us, right, I'd venture to say almost all of us, want to be successful, independent and in control of our own lives. We don't want to be the losers of our world. We walk past the homeless while our hearts remain unmoved. And we work so hard to avoid any form, any form of material suffering. But fellow Christian, can't you see we worship a suffering king? We follow a king who in one sense was the ultimate loser of the world. And Jesus' life sets the passion for our lives. Suffering now 
glory later. Suffering now, glory later. If there's one rule to live by, here it is. No cross, no crown. You see, following Jesus is hard work. It requires us to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross daily, to die to sin daily. It's tough. It's hard. And it's often painful. We have the world, the flesh and the devil all set against us. Your friends may mock you. Your family may disown you. You might be less than successful in your career and you will almost definitely have less wealth than you otherwise could. Let me set your expectations right now. Fellow Christian, don't bother trying to seek an easy life. Follow your suffering king. But it's so easy, isn't it, when we hear that, to feel bitter towards God, to feel somewhat resentful against God. And if you've taken losses, if you've made sacrifices for the gospel, surely there's those moments you stand back, look at your life, look at those losses and sacrifices and wonder to yourself, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? One friend once said to me, Adam, I sometimes just wish I wasn't a Christian. The person you didn't marry because they didn't follow the Lord. The childhood you didn't enjoy because your parents chose Jesus over the world. The friend you didn't keep, or maybe the friend who walked away from you because they couldn't accept your Lord. Oh, when the losses and the sacrifices stack up, it's so easy to feel resentful, isn't it? To feel that our lives are all suffering and no glory, all cross and no crown. We know it's worth it, but we often struggle to believe it, don't we? Friends, when you see Jesus in his purity, in his power and his perfection. When you see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, I promise you, it'll be worth it all. All the pain, all the shame, all the hurt, the lies, the rumors, the slander, the sacrifices, the losses, the griefs. I promise you when you see the risen Lord Jesus in his glory, you will know that it was worth it all. When you cannot bear the weight of the cross, please look to the glory of the crown. Be assured of Jesus' words in John 16, you will have suffering in this world. But be courageous. I have conquered the world. May we live by the cross and may we live for his crown. If you're not a Christian, let me ask, what kind of king, what kind of God do you think Jesus is? I suspect that for many people, we think that the God of the Bible is cruel, angry, 
and harsh. And if Jesus is a king, well, I guess that must make him a tyrant who wants to break my will, kill my joy, and oppress my freedom. But can you see the kind of king that Jesus really is? He's a king who is willing to suffer for you. He's a king who's willing to die for you. He's a king who loves you so much that he would give his life for you. And I don't know about you, but man, that's the kind of king I want. That's the kind of king I need. A king who is weak for the weak, who suffers for the suffering, who is rejected for the rejected, who is cast out for the outcast. I need a king for someone like me. When I pull back the veil, when I peel back the layers, when we see Jesus for who he really is, let me tell you what we see. There we look and see the beloved Son of God in the fullness of His glory. And there we look and see the suffering Son of Man in the depths of His love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is so hard to live for You. It is so hard to be faithful to you. Every day, God, we wake up, fight sin, love Jesus, and do it all over again. And some days we wake up and just don't know that we can do it again. God, if that's us, we pray that we might see a vision of your glory and see there the King who has conquered the world and who will one day make all things new. So for those of us, God, who struggle to see if all the losses, all the griefs, all the sacrifices could ever be worth it, lift our eyes and help us see the King of glory. For in Him we know that You have conquered the world. And we pray these things in the name of King Jesus, our Lord. Amen.